heterodorks, heterodox dorks. Spelled with an X. Yeah, it is. It was that close, Nina? Close enough for me. All right. Well, I'm I'm Corinna, your co-host. And I'm Nina, your other co-host. You are listening to the Heterodorks podcast. And today we have a special guest heterodork. It is author Simon Edge. Hello. I'm I'm very impressed that you do your you single you sing your jingles live. They're not canned jingles. We actually sing them. We have a canned one. And then we oh, have a canned one too. Okay. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll sing the live one so the listener can compare. The canned one to the live one, or they're not really live. All of this is canned, really. That's true, and I'll have the opportunity as as the editor to completely auto tune it, get every single one of those notes directly on on the right note. Yeah. Oh, but but I, I'm here to testify that they were all completely on note anyway, so there's no need. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And I was going to PayPal you, but we don't use that anymore. But I will definitely <laughs> send you some Bitcoin. So thank you. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, the important thing is that Corinna auto tunes my opinions. They're always perfect pitch, Nina. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> dissonant. That's Corinna right. is like a postmodern dissonant 12 tone composer of opinions. I- and and, right. and I also go through, and every time that Nina refers to me as he or him, I also go in and carefully edit that to say she and her. <laughs> You've been doing that? Haven't you Be- noticed? Behind my back? No, no. You listen to every episode before we upload it. You just, you it's so, it's so natural. It's so natural. Okay. Well, you're doing a very bad job, Corinna. Anyway, we're here to talk to Simon, who is the author of several books, but the one that I read is The End of the World is Flat, which is a satire of all the stuff that we're interested in. Yeah. So uh, for listeners who haven't read the book and also co-hosts who haven't finished the book, <laughs> can you? And I finished the book, uh, I think, four months ago. Uh, and so I just want to say- a, a refresher. Well, yeah, and um, before I let you talk, even though it's my job to get you to talk, I'm just going to keep talking here. Uh, I really enjoyed that book. Reading satire like that is such a relief for those of us who are engaged in this controversy, I guess. It's such a good reality check and reminder that we're not insane and a comfort really, as well as entertainment. Good. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, you know, we all bring to it what we can and, and I've got, um, you know, I, I used to be, I've been, I was a journalist for a long time and I started early on in my career as a journalist. I was, I was a gay journalist. So I, I was the news editor and then the editor of the Capital Gay, which was um, the the oldest established free gay paper in London. Uh, I was the final editor. It went bust on my watch. Um, and I was doing that in the mid 90s. So I've got a kind of history, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, sort of, I, I guess I'm old enough to be a, a veteran of, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of this and I've got a I, I can see a lot of the bullshit happening, a lot of the rewriting of history. So I've got that. But I also, uh, in the last five or six years, have been writing satirical novels, uh, often with a with a historical twist or, or 
taking a quirky bit of the world and trying to explain it, but to do it in as accessible a way as possible. And and when I found, you know, like a lot of us do, when I found that I was getting obsessed with uh, with this issue, then it it occurred to me that I did have a kind of bit of a unique perspective, in that I had had yeah front row ish seat on how the uh, lesbian and gay organizations in this country um had kind of morphed and a lot of the people who were the main players have been friends of mine over the years um but i could also i could also put it in a different way to people who would who who were uh, doing it not for comedy uh, so anyway, so my idea was I'd, I'd, I'd kind of been interested in in, in uh, flat Earth beliefs. Um, the I think I saw a Netflix. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was a Netflix documentary about about flat Earthers in the Midwest in the United States. And um, it is flat here. Uh, it is flat. <laughs> yes, I, I I I've seen the pictures. Um, I, and the Netflix documentary overstates, I think, the influence of the people who genuinely believe in the flat Earth. And and I, but I had seen this documentary. It follows around this crazy guy, and he goes to conventions and things, and and he has a few people who follow him and are impressed by him. Uh, and I started reading into it just because I was interested in how you would uh, live your life if you believed that the Earth was flat. Um, and um, and then I realized that actually virtually nobody does believe the earth is flat, that in the 19th century, some pretty crazy people did. And then in the 1970s, some, I think, Canadians, some of them were, uh, some uh, people were basically, to take the mickey, uh, set up a flat earth society, but they weren't doing it very seriously. Uh, but you know, pretty much we live in a world of crazy. We live in you know, a world where any people believe the most ludicrous things, but bizarrely, nobody believes that the earth is flat. How strange is that? Uh, so the next step, the sort of ping moment where you have an idea was, well, wouldn't it be interesting to, because I would like to try and satirize this issue uh, and and let's take away some of the sting from it. Let's take away some of the the, the the more you know emotive things. So let's sort of reframe it and ask the question: If you wanted to persuade the world by stealth that the Earth was flat and that it was really wicked and evil not to believe that the Earth is flat, how would you go about it? So I have a, a handsome Californian billionaire who, for reasons which gradually become apparent in the book, um, uh, wants to uh, persuade the world that the Earth is flat, uh, but doesn't want to be seen to be the the active agent in this. So he co-opts an organisation in London, a a very successful charity, a geographical charity, unlikely as that may sound, called the Orange Peel Foundation, and they set about using sort of the dark arts Twitter and bots and things to try to convince the world little by little that the earth is flat and they do it through crazy academia North America comes into play a little bit the aim really is to show that in the world we live in you really can persuade uh, people of uh, crazy stuff as long as their tribe also believes it it's the tribal thing that once you can embed that sense of allegiance 
and then you can give people an excuse to believe what you've told them that they, they need to believe. It's not actually as, as hard as you think it's going to be. So that is the, that's basically the project of my novel. Is this supposed to be a, a metaphor for something? Yeah. Um, oh. uh, you know, uh, uh, officially, I mean, I, I was quite coy about it at first because I mm. didn't really know how it was going to land. So at first I said, no, no, it's not a metaphor, not a metaphor, anything. It's just about flat earth beliefs. Um, but the organization, the Orange Peel Foundation, was very closely modeled on Stonewall in London as I saw it. And some of the characters were were inspired by real people. So so it was, w- w- the, the other aspect of it was that I, I, I sort of want, wanted to understand what it had been like for people who had been staggeringly successful. You know, I don't know, if, maybe it's not, I don't actually know how bad the anti-lesbian anti, um, and gay discrimination is in, in where you are compared with where we are, but we, we inherited a whole bunch of really, really archaic Victorian laws. So that in the 1990s, the idea of having lesbian and gay equality was... You know, virtually unthinkable. And Stonewall, this charity that was set up by a bunch of actors um, in the late 1980s, managed to achieve its shopping list and way beyond, you know, way more than anybody thought would ever be possible in the space of about 17 years. When they got gay marriage, as in not just civil partnerships, but gay marriage, Nobody ex- had expected that. So so it was absolute model performance by, by a lobbying charity. But of course, they had nowhere to go. So, you know, once you've done that, what are you going to do next? You have built this really, really impressive charity from that used to it started in one room and there were three of them or something. And now there's hundreds of people and they go on to, it's a fast track into government if, if you've worked for Stonewall. Um, what are you going to do when you've got when you've when you've achieved all your aims? Are you going to just wind it up and go home, or are you going to find something else to do? And then, so if somebody comes along and says, "Right, well, we'd like you to do actually the complete opposite of what you've been doing all along," um, how do you approach that? Where's you know how, how do you deal with the the moral dilemma? So I have a couple of characters in in in, in my charity. They have they are very modest little charities. So, so um, they were set up to correct the distortions of the Mercator projection in mapping the Earth. This is a, you know this is a real thing. Uh, it's a, it's a niche thing, but but if you live in Canada or in Greenland or Australia or Antarctica or something, the country you live in is grotesquely distorted when you look at a, at a map of the world in, in two dimensions. And uh, so there are various uh, different projections that people have offered over the years to represent the 3D Earth more accurately in 2D. This is a little, you know, it's a, it's a little niche issue, and I had my charity doing that. They succeed. They succeed beyond their wildest dreams. They get Google Maps to correct their maps. So they've done everything. They can go home. What are they going to do next? Uh, and they're about to disband, and then along comes the billionaire and says, we'll pay you tons and tons of money to carry on doing going, but actually do the opposite of what you've been doing until now. So, yeah, 
that's an uh, allegory, I guess you would call it. I don't want to spoil it, but I will say that yours actually has an ending. The end of The World is Flat has a an ending and a resolution that I think is yeah. much tidier <laughs> than real life. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's you know, it's billed as it's billed as a comedy. Some people say it's not very funny because it's too frightening or too real, but it's got in jokes in it, I guess. But what you know, when you bill something as a comedy, it's sort of priced in that you you're pr- you're providing a happy ending. But that but the happy ending can be death and despair. <laughs> well, that you know, that depends on your take on the world. But um you know, I, I guess, you know, for me the, the the project for for the novelist, you know, when you make story you know, making story is not like reporting the world. Making story is is cr- creating things with a nice rhythm and a narrative, and it all wraps up happily in the end. And one of the reasons that the reader uh, or the film viewer carries on with it, the, you know, the engine, the narrative, is to find out what happens and how you're going to resolve it. So it's kind of for me as the creator, then it's kind of, it's part of the the exercise is to you know you've got these plates spinning and what are you going to do with them by the time you get to the end uh i am very aware that that in the real world things are not quite so convenient although i have to say when i i, I finished it um in about may last year and it was going to be published in august so we were going right up to the wire and it was in in may last year that in this country the media or at least you know part of it started to get really interested in how Stonewall was holding an awful lot of organizations to ransom and was mis- misinterpreting the law and you know had basically had was kind of out of control and a number of government departments were disaffiliating from Stonewall um and I got a little bit overexcited I thought you know kind of you know the, this is this is the real world racing to catch up with my fiction and jobs done and you know kind of it's all going to be over by the time the novel's out uh and uh, uh one of my my friend who was editing sort of had a quiet word and said you know let's not be too hasty about this it's not going to happen really quite that fast and that conveniently more sales for you Right. If it wrapped up in real life. The longer it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. The the market (laughs) remains there. Yeah. Yeah. You're like a war profiteer. The most popular movie I ever made is called This Land is Mine. It's a short and it's been viewed like 15 million times or something. And it's uh, every time there's a conflict related to Israel, the views grow by a couple million. And if I were making any profit off of it, I would be a war profiteer, but it's free. (laughs) But it's like, oh, great. I made something that's evergreen because there's never going to be any resolution there. Yes. And, you know, hopefully, (laughs) well, let's just say one way or another, right? Like either, either this nightmare will end or you'll have a continual source of sales. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really nice for me to to watch people discussing it, you know, all over the English speaking world. You know, hooray for Twitter. Twitter is is awful in many ways, but it has served me very well doing this. 
and people i think seem to recommend it to each other as a way of trying to explain the the, the genesis of of this thing in our country anyway i, I don't know quite how i, I imagine in north america it, the origin of the crazy doesn't my version of it doesn't fit quite so well because in in in, in the united states it's come so much more of a, out of academia um but I think people have found it useful just looking at how the public sector got captured by a rogue charity. But I think also, you know, people do have um, hmm. an, an interest in 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 just the the weird way that this this thing that we've invented in in you know most of our lifetimes, the internet, bizarre things that can that malign people can do with it if they want to, but also the unintended consequences that it can have and and so you know if you if if you it, it has always been possible to to co-opt people and to persuade people to believe really bizarre things but once upon a time you, you tended to need to do it in fairly small groups whereas now you can do it on a worldwide level and at a speed that i think has staggered all of us um so even if you know, I don't think any any of us think it's going to happen. But even if this solution was was wrapped up and resolved very quickly, then then it would be quite nice to think that my little book is a is a sort of um, you know kind of memorial to how that how that happened. As somebody who was a journalist in the gay press in in the nineties, what is your take on what we see in the gay press now? Has it suffered a similar type of mission change as the LGBT charities have? Or uh, do, do you see differences between how it was 20 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's had exactly the same mission change as the charities. We know, don't we, that the thing that it's called the LGBT community is is divided up into all kinds of little, little uh, uh, subgroups. You know, lesbians have have their own microclimate, and gay men have their own microclimate. Lesbians need no education on on the difficulties, the erosion of women's rights, single sex spaces, all that kind of stuff. Gay men, by and large, are you know this is really new to most of us. Uh, this is not something we've ever had to think about before. Lots of gay men don't have very you know it's a generalization but but don't probably don't have a great deal of contact with with people raising young families and so aren't hearing the kind of stuff that's happening in schools uh mm. the concerns that parents have um so gay men i think are a lot more biddable people behave in different ways for different generations but but you know there has always been a level of tribal thinking who you like culturally, you know, we all like Madonna, we all don't like, you know, don't know who. So there is a herd mentality in the way that gay men are accustomed to thinking if they want to be part of the tribe. And being part of the tribe by and large is enjoyable because it it is it is a, a mark of your liberation, of the life you want to live. And I think the it, it could have gone either way. The gay the gay media I, I still call it the gay media rather than the LGBT media. But once upon a time, I remember 
in the noughties, for example, or when I was doing it, we were often really critical of of the of the charities, of the institutions, of the lobbies. Uh, so Stonewall was. It was all a bit kind of, you know, men in suits and corridors of power, and we in the in the gay press used to kick against them quite a lot and just be quite critical. And if Stonewall had messed up on something, we really didn't hesitate to say so. So it could easily have gone that the media could have scrutinised the way these charities were going and could have said, hang on a minute, well, if you want to change the name of this community and you want to add I for intersex, but intersex people don't want to take part in it, and you want to add A for asexual, and what the hell is an asexual bar anyway? The, the people in the gay media are, are not stupid and they're not untalented. They could have asked those questions, but it didn't go that way. And I think, you know, one of the reasons is that the the media proprietors had decided they decided which way the wind was blowing well don't they get don't they get funding from the state i mean they're most newspapers are scrambling for money and i assume Mm. that like the soros foundation is in Mm. addition to funding these charities they're also funding these media outlets which i assume are also they could also be charities i mean in the u.s i think a lot of them are nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, Pink. We have a, a ridiculous thing called Pink News um, here. Oh yes, uh, and um, that they, I think, did get a substantial grant from Google. I have to say, I'm not the kind of journalist that's any good at reading a balance sheet, so I have to just believe what other people tell me. So I don't want to. I am not very good at knowing who gets funding from where. So, but yeah, I mean, it is true that journalism, since because it is so hard to monetize the internet, to if you're giving content away free, then it is it is much more tempting to go after grant grant funding if you're in the media nowadays. So, yeah, that could well be the case that it, it joins up, and and then you know, generationally, going to work for the gay, for the LGBT press is is a is kind of like an entry level job in journalism. So, if you have a, a generation where you know overwhelmingly these ideas have taken hold again perhaps it is it's not surprising um that it was very easy for 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 the media to grab these ideas and then and then you know telegraph them out to the community and sort of making it clear that that this is what you have to believe on pain of excommunication that you know that that we we have a we have a journalist here, who, or journalist, who we have a propagandist on, on the Guardian newspaper called Owen Jones, who oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, has a million followers on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but but by the way, as, as soon as you started to correct yourself from saying <laughs> the word journalist, <laughs> I, I knew immediately that you, you were going to say yeah. Owen Jones. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to talk about the, the Ben, the guy that publishes Pink News. I thought you were going to talk about him. Yeah, we can talk about him. But, but, he has a, yeah, a lot of propagandists. Owen Jones two two weeks ago, I think, did did this kind of crazed video uh, where he's basically saying, you, you know, you're all horrible, you're all mean. If you're gender critical, nobody will shag you. And uh, uh, so, I mean, it's it, you know, you're ugly, you smell, and but you know, and you I, deserve I, it. You deserve <laughs> to be alone if you're like that. Is what he said. 
Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's, you know, on the one hand, it's playground, but on the other hand, it's kind of, you know, it's quite well targeted because if you want to frighten a gay man, uh, you know, say you're you're not going to get a shag, it is, it, you know, it goes really to the heart of the matter. So they are really quite serious in trying to, the threat of excommunication is not a, is not an idle one. Now, for for women, I'm wearing my menopausal woman T-shirt, and uh, I'm working on a superhero character called Menopausal Woman, and this is another one of Menopausal Woman's superpowers: is totally immune to uh, being frightened of nobody shagging her. Yes, it's like this is a feature. This sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm also at, at the time of life where I don't give a toss either, and it's quite liberating, isn't it? It is. It was. Is the organization Stonewall named after the New York City bar? Yeah. Stonewall? Well, it was nam- named after the riots. Right. Okay. Yeah, that always puzzled me. Like when I first started hearing about Stonewall, I mm. thought it was American because I was like, "Well, wait, yeah. why would an organization in England name itself after a New York City bar?" Yeah. I mean, they used to, I mean, it was funny how the, the profile has changed because in, in, in the olden days, in the 1990s, there was a radical organization called Outrage, um, which I sort of hang, hung around with a little bit um, a, a, in a very passive way. And there was Stonewall. And Outrage, you could be a member and you could go on demonstrations, you had placards and you wore T-shirts and it's quite sexy and you know, kiss-ins and die-ins and all this stuff like that. Whereas Stonewall was all about uh, going and talking to ministers in Parliament and it was, it was you know, smart young men in suits. Um, that was necessary. It was really necessary. But you can also imagine that if you were a, a not smart young man in a T-shirt, with a placard, it was very easy to slag off Stonewall, and um, and I remember that, that people had T-shirts saying um, so. Ian McKellen, uh, you know Gandalf, who set up Stonewall, had tea with John Major when he was the Prime Minister. John Major was the Prime Minister that came after Margaret Thatcher, uh, and uh, and because he was, a, you know, this is quite a good thing that, that you know, to, to back in those days, to in 1990 or 1991 or something, to have the, the leader of the gay rights movement having tea at 10 Downing Street with the Prime Minister, that was a big deal. That never happened. But if you were a, you know, sort of uh, angry young man like I was, that then then you would say, well, this shows that you're just cozying up to the establishment. And we used to say Stonewall was a riot, not a tea party. It was something we threw at them. But yeah, it was very much trying to, you know, kind of stand in the tradition of, you know, we, we, were, we were very, very aware that, that, gay, that gay liberation had started on your side of the Atlantic, and, and we, were, we were walking in its footsteps. Well, speaking of being an angry young man, I know there was always this issue around gay marriage as a goal, because, uh, you know, marriage, stability, a conservative life, becoming normal, mm. as opposed to having pride and being, you know, in, in breaking these norms. So can you talk about that? Like, where, where did you stand on gay marriage in the 90s and the noughties? There was a division. I think I always 
wanted civil partnerships and because I always found it quite wounding, you know, to be in a, you know, in the office environment and people are going to weddings every weekend and, 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 you know, you're just excluded from that. And it's just, it's taken as a given that you don't do this kind of thing and that you're never going to get married or do, and, and, and it, and you, you can get very, certainly I did, you get very easily embittered by that, that level of exclusion. And so, it was extremely exciting when when civil partnerships happened. When they came to sort of trade them up to to uh, marriage, I I think if if I look back on it, I think I I thought this was a little bit pointless because the the civil partnerships leg- legislation had been very very carefully designed so that there was almost no difference at all. Bit in the effect of in 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 the status of being civilly civil partnered and being married, there was one tiny tiny thing that involved recognition in 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 other in foreign countries or something. It was so tiny that you wouldn't know the difference. So I remember thinking at the time, well, this won't fly. There'll be no appetite for it because um, because we've we've got everything uh, we wanted. We've got the same benefits. What's the difference? Uh, but as it happened, uh, there was a great appetite for it. I got married in the, I think, a couple of months in the, after it first became possible. So I was right in the in the first wave of it. And in my experience, actually, I mean, we, you know, people could have, um, you know, you could choose which way you went. You either have a, you know, kind of big flamboyant, let's reinvent the wedding type ceremony or you can have a ceremony that is saying actually we we just want to have the same kind of thing as the rest of the world has always had and my, when i got married my my husband was was already he's dead now he was terminally ill um and we had an incredibly warm and modest ceremony which was very very family based and the fact that we both had both our parents were dead at the time um so all four parents were dead but but we had the the, the senior members of our family were there so i had an elderly uncle and my husband had an elderly aunt and the participation of of our of a family members who we might have expected to be quite conservative in this thing made a massive difference to my life it made me kind of much much more integrated with my extended family than i ever than i ever expected to be so um i would say it wasn't necessarily what i anticipated but in just my own experience is that the mental health consequences of being just treated the same as everybody else were enormous because it just took away a lot of bitterness and a lot of barriers in my head um yeah but but yeah there there were indeed fights over it and those fights still i think get exploited and amplified by people who are trying to find differences and and um and and make a bigger deal of them than they should because the the fact remains if you you know if you don't want to get married, you don't have to. You can get civil partnered or you can just stay together. The point is that you have the option. It's interesting that 
you say that you felt bitterness that you weren't able to have the same status in society as heterosexuals and that some of that bitterness was relieved when you were able to get married. So I'm, I'm comparing it to an argument that the trans activists make that they feel bitter that they're not accepted in society as the sex they claim they are. Mm. And that when they are, are treated as members of the sex that they claim to be, that they feel happier and that that relieves a, a similar degree of, of that mental stress. And I think you described it as mental health, accepting people on the basis of their, their claims of, of their gender identity is helpful for their mental health. So I'm, I'm wondering, not, not to argue or, or to try to mm. persuade you, but I wonder if you can contrast their claims with what your experience was. Um, I mean, I think that what I can see, where I have massive sympathy for you know, trans people's mental health at the moment, when people say in great anguish, you know, it's really horrible every time we open a newspaper or every time we look on social media, then, then our existence is being debated. And, um, uh, you, you know, you can argue about whether that's literally true or not. But but I understand the point that, that it's very, very easy to take it personally. And we as lesbians and gays went through much the same thing during the campaign for law reform in, in the 1990s and the noughties, I would really say about that, that people who claim to be trans allies, who are also, who are, who are the people amplifying most loudly the nonsense that there is a genocidal movement trying to, you know, exterminate trans people, have a great deal for ans- to answer for. I mean, this just seems to be the, you know, the, the, the greatest cruelty of virtue signaling. However, that's not you know, it's not precisely the point that you've, you've made. But the I'm I'm not sure. My frustration was was being excluded from institutions of the state, being told I'm a second class citizen um, because I'm not allowed to get married, um, which no longer exists, and I feel a lot better and a lot more integrated as, into society because of that. I think there is inevitably a difference between a desire to just just be treated like everybody else and a desire to be treated as the biological opposite of what you are, because that's that's much much harder to reconcile. You don't just change a law to do that. Um, you know, clearly, there's, there's pe- people being allowed to get married, being allowed to wear what they like, to go to the office, to, to not get beaten up in the street, all that kind of stuff. Those are things uncontroversially ought to be open to everybody. But I think there is um there's bound to be a necessary conflict that, you know, that the, you know, those, those videos, the, the call me ma'am type type video where somebody's going postal because somebody's called him called them sir. Um, that just legislating so that somebody doesn't react to somebody who's obviously male as if they were male is is quite a hard thing to do. So you know, I, I don't think you're ever going to satisfy that one to the extent that 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 trans person would like to have it satisfied. 
We're looking at groups like Stonewall that are trying to institutionally reform other organizations in Britain to have those organizations treat trans women as women and trans men as men. You might not be able to legislate at an individual level interactions between people like us, for example, Mm. but you may be able to legally mandate or require that these organizations treat some members of the class male as, as that they're females and Mm. and vice versa. Mm. And, and that seems like that's what Stonewall is attempting to do is to really break down and eliminate the legal definition of sex and replace it with gender identity. Hmm. And that their argument for doing so is that it is to, that it's no big deal for men or women to accommodate trans people in their spaces. And that the, the net benefit of doing this is Hmm. much greater than the net cost of doing it. That, that seems to be their argument. So, so aren't, aren't we just jerks? Well, I mean, they're, they're right that there is no cost to men. Uh, There's still so... some cost to men. There's still some cost. Men, I have heard uh, that conscientious men do not want to be in a position where they're scaring women just by being... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I, but uh, I mean, if, if I'm in a changing room or if I'm, I'm in a shower and there is a trans man in there, um, it, this is not physically threatening to me. Right. So, so, so there is no, you know, this is something that I might find strange, but you get over it, um, and and the world changes. So, so if if that was the only issue, then there wouldn't be a problem. But clearly, when the roles are reversed, because men are bigger than women and uh, men are overwhelmingly responsible for sexual assaults, sexual assaults on women. Then, then it is it is w- women who have the problem with people who weren't born women coming into their single sex spaces, and you know this is where you have a conflict of rights. So the the greatest lie is the the, the thing that is trotted out all the time: or rights aren't like pie. In this case, actually, they are. That's the problem. I'm hearing from more gay men, they're on the receiving end of wrath from women who identify as gay men. And I do wonder what that's like. Like it can't, there's, there's such a asymmetry between men and women that a a woman scorned, but you know, hell hath no fury, like a trans identified woman scorned, (laughs) except perhaps the fury of a trans identified man scorned is probably probably more violent it's probably more violent yeah but uh i i wonder what that's like because the asymmetry is there but the wrath is strong and certainly the reputational damage that is attempted by some of these women on social media uh seems like it could be damaging i mean social media can be it can be wielded like a weapon you know i live in the country and one of the reasons that it's very convenient and comfortable for me to speak out is because I, you know, no longer live in the gay bubble that I once used to live, and so I have little experience of of the kind of stuff that, you know, venues and so on. I do not feel remotely threatened 
uh, and have never felt personally threatened, although I haven't especially been in the position to be, but I can't really imagine feeling personally threatened by a uh, trans man um, being in some kind of space that I'm in. Um, you know, kind of, let's face it, you know, gay men uh, in en masse do some pretty, you know, we do stuff that 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 you know went high and you know we're not especially proud of and uh certainly in in my time you know kind of living life to the full in london for 30 years i was quite reckless i had a vast amount of uh experiences some good some bad and i, I don't want to be sanctimonious and say that you know my entire equilibrium is going to be is going to be totally destroyed by the existence of people who were born women coming into those spaces and saying that they're saying that they're men. I, I all I can do is just listen, which I've spent you know a lot of time doing to uh, feminists talking about it, and just observe that that the the impact on women and on men is very very different. This this really you know this seems to be as a man all i can do is observe that this really really seems to matter a lot to women and uh you know listen and learn makes sense not least i i think with, with um you know, it's a funny old thing that that gay men um yeah there's a cliche with a you know with a bit of truth in it that you know kind of gay men you, uh and and women gay men and straight women get along well um and uh you know i've always had close women friends most uh, i have a lot of straight men friends now but but historically i had more straight friends who were women that, than were men um but so certainly looking back in my life and i i don't think it's unusual those friendships are kind of very much on the gay man's terms that um you know it's all about you know giving you a shoulder to cry on when things are difficult and and then kind of listening to your exploits and kind of uh, when you're being graphic and and telling you how how funny you are or how you know kind of how outrageous you are and you know there's not a lot of room for women to talk about the experience of life as a woman to to gay men you know far more likely to do it to you know gay men are going to be the last on the list to speak about uh you know the the, the difference in biology between a man and woman or or, or, or nervousness of fear of, of men you can talk either to to uh to other women or to um heterosexual men male partners and you know, I hope that doesn't sound ridiculous and, and strikes a chord. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why for me it has been such an eye-opener to to spend such a lot of time on social media listening to women talking about their own experiences because I really didn't know so much of this and how much it mattered and how differently women experience the world. We've had a few guests believe that I am a butch lesbian I don't know if you have that impression, uh, but the fact is I'm a recovering heterosexual and I 
was very fascinated by gay men when I was young because gay men mm. seemed like they were like men, but less assholey than men, yeah. right? They're like yeah. men, but oh, they understand. And of course, most young women, I am sorry to admit that we have romantic ideas about being understood, right? Mm. Like, I guess men are having mm. lustful ideas about putting their genitals into something and women are fantasizing about being understood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am sorry to say that I am uh, no longer on speaking terms with the gay men friends of my mm. youth because they've yeah. all swallowed the, mm. the genderist stuff. And that yeah. has really made me think because I feel a kind of allegiance to gay rights as mm. I understood and believed in them when mm. I was young, partly because I knew these gay men. And now these gay men uh, won't talk to me <laughs> because, yeah. because I'm not willing to say that men are women and women are men. It's upsetting, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've lost so mm. many, so many friends. Mm. And uh, I also mentioned in a different episode that many of my older lesbian friends have not cared about this issue at all, presumably mm. because they were partnered or they're just like not in any mm. danger of, you know, some trans identified man going after them and mm. then screaming that they're a bigot. Uh, I think people are coming around now, but in 2018, I was somewhat shocked by how few lesbians I encountered personally that were sympathetic to my position. There were lots of lesbians online. Uh, there were lots of lesbians, you know, leading the charge, but the ones that I kept meeting at events and stuff, I, I just started to assume that they were ideologues, you know, that they, they were in the cult because so many of them turned out that way. Yeah, yeah. And it, it certainly, it, it, I think for me, it, it makes me cautious of, uh, as I say, you know, I kind of live in the country and in a fairly conservative village where I, I have a very comfortable life. And I am nervous of going back to old haunts and seeing people who used to be my friends because it's very hard to know what reaction you're going to get. And... Uh, if you are the gobby one who speaks out, then they have the advantage over you because they know what you think and you don't know what they, what they think. And, you know, you can get somewhere on the fence or maybe secretly supportive or, or, or deeply hostile. And I don't know if you've, if you've found this, but I, I find it very, very hard to predict that, you know, people's other opinions aren't necessarily a guide to what their opinion about this is going to be. And, and who they hang out with isn't necessarily a guide to what they're going to think about this. So the, the number of people who've come up to me from my old life and had a quiet whisper have been quite surprising. But I resent that. I really do. That kind of old friendships just shattered by, by this civil war, I think we should call it. So you have lost friendships over this? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the biggest one is, is the person I lived with for 15 years. 
and uh, who with whom I was on very good terms when we split up, and he came to my wedding, and he came to my husband's funeral, and you know, so we have we're no longer on speaking terms. And and that's on the basis of knowing that people like me are male. Yeah, yeah. that's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it is really extraordinary, isn't it? That that it's. I mean, there are, there are other things. It's not. I mean, it's not completely unique because we had in this country, you've heard of Brexit, um, and uh, that divided people. So you know, you can have referendums and things, and they they can, you can get very resentful if somebody else is on a different on an opposite side of the argument to you. But but this does feel really quite particular that I can't remember. For example, any other opinion you could hold being sufficient to get you barred from a gay bar or barred from gay pride or something like that. That's, you know, it's just really weird. Um, and and superb, you know, initially anyway. I mean, it's it, it, it's been very, very well handled by the, the people who banned you know, excluded debate. People who said you must have no debate did a very good job of it. You know, I, I was a, I, I guess I'm a sort of found, I'm, I, I was at the founding meeting at the LGB Alliance. So I wasn't one of the people that called the meeting, but I was one of the about 50 people that turned up. The people who branded the LGB Alliance a hate group about 12 hours later w- without knowing a thing of what had taken place or who was in it or what it was going to do. Yeah. I mean, it was deeply horrible and in itself hateful, but it was also a a genius stroke of of politics because, you know, we live in a world where where these, these tags stick. If there's one thing that people know about the LGB Alliance, it's it's that it's a hate group. That's what they think. The same with, J.K. Rowling is, is supposedly a transphobe, and and people can't name an example of it. And these these things just stick and get bedded in. The use of branding people as hateful or or as phobic of something, to me, uh, I, I I noticed that as part of the strategy for gay marriage, to brand mm. people who opposed gay marriage to be homophobic. Yeah. Not not people who were traditional or resistant to social change, mm. which they certainly were. Yeah. But rather to ascribe their motives as, as being uh, animus and not, I don't know what, what you'd say, just uh, resistant to change. Yeah. 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 But um, it's, it's the same thing to, to be used against the at first feminists and now everybody else mm. who are uh, mm. resisting the idea that we should, dispense with sex as a as a mm. class of human yeah yeah i've certainly dished out that in my wilder youth i i hear your stories simon and i i may be projecting but it sounds like you've been through a lot in life and that you've changed a lot that yeah and i um <laughs> me too yeah right. I mean, we do don't we well you know hopefully we do when we get older 
it, to me, it's one of the nice surprises of getting older that, that um, you know, you kind of live in a, particularly live in a bubble where there's a cult of youth and you think that aging is going to be the most, the worst thing that could possibly happen. And one of the nice surprises is that you actually a bit more balanced about stuff and you are a bit calmer and you get a bit of wisdom. But yeah, I think, I think life teaches you stuff. I think that is a fair point. I, I think certainly I have undoubtedly been the person who noticed that a certain MP in the Labour Party voted in such and such a way in 1997 and opposed such and such, and and we will never let you forget that you did that. And, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a place for it because you can make political capital out of it and you can polemicise about it. But on the other hand, if you want to change people's minds, then you also need to, as you say, Corinna, that, that um, you know, kind of recognise the difference between animus and reluctance to embrace change, that there may be a big difference between those things. And I, I used to think, certainly, that, um, I mean, that comes back to, 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 to the, you know, the kind of future that I thought we could have once we had achieved law reform. Certainly, I I felt that it, maybe it was just the part the time in my life when I you know kind of found a uh, found the love of my life and and was enjoying marriage and but the to me it was an incredible relief just to be n- not to have to assert your difference and to enjoy just a bit of normality without having had clearly if you want to choose to be different that's great but but when previously we hadn't had the option it was really nice to have the option to be normal and at that point it was very obvious to me that you know for example I had taken earlier in my life I'd taken the uh, the view that I needed to distance myself from my extended family because I had assumed that they were all going to be homophobes until proved otherwise and that is very much not true now and some of my you know most important relationships are with cousins and you know family has become very important to me that doesn't mean it wasn't true at the time but the point of it is that people's opinions change and so I thought you know the model of post-apartheid South Africa where you have a truth and reconciliation committee and you, you just have an understanding that you know we went through a whole load of shitty stuff but we're through that now and we need to move on and uh you can you know there is no point in bearing grudges because the whole point is to you know the the, the important thing now is to is to enjoy the better world that we have made and enjoy the fact that people who once disapproved of you no longer do that was my experience of the world and um I I am bothered and nervous uh, when I see that the symbols of what I used to think of as my movement, like the rainbow flag, are now become a label for you know horrid authoritarianism and and uh, and special treatment and all those things that we're familiar with. So your hope is that in as it pertains to the the trans movement that it starts to resemble more like the South African truth and and reconciliation process. I mean, that's what I keep thinking of when you talk, Simon, is how am I going to forgive all yeah. these people that I'm 
Mm. that are unforgivable these people that are castrating their children mm. and mm. Uh, yeah you know blacklisting and scapegoating and witch burning mm. it's mm. gonna be hard for me well it's it's easy nina because you only have two choices there's never going to be justice if you're holding your breath for that that's never going to happen so the only thing that you can do is uh hold resentment or offer forgiveness those that's just a or b yeah hold resentment mm. yeah th that's mm. valid mm. there are reasons to I, mean, I think that the i mean there's there's a there's the people who who are trans and who are always going to be and then there are people who have fallen into something which they might have been better off if they hadn't fallen into into it so that you know the, the the way the world would look if this if this you know bizarre phenomena didn't exist it's kind of hard to picture how many players there would be but i think the the people it will be hard to forgive are are the a lot of the time the allies who have been you know so much enjoying the self-righteousness the, the sanctimony and if you if you really did believe that that young trans people were in in massive danger of committing suicide. You wouldn't. Talk, why would you talk about it so much? What? Why this? You know, this disappointment to discover that not very many trans women have been murdered in the in the in advanced Western countries. The the value system of the people who claim who claim to be so passionate on the part of the the most marginalised minority is just really warped because you, you're just playing havoc with people's mental health for me well it's all part of the fashion mm. for me the unforgivable part is the cowardice is the people that know and participated anyway mm. Mm. that's that's most people's uh default defense Nina, i know is, i know is being being a coward is a lot safer than being a hero. It's a sad and lonely life that I'm living, have lived, and will live in the future. But what what you were saying, Simon, about being integrated in society, and and it sounds like you were like surprised by this experience of integration that you weren't mm. really expecting, and then that mm. it had these positive mental health effects, like you could relax. And that yeah. is probably true of me, right? Like I am. I am like angry and alone. I'm a hermit. I call myself a hermit witch and I do not organize my life or change myself in order to be accepted. But on those rare moments, I have felt acceptance. It's been like, mm. oh yeah, that feels really good, right? That's what, mm. that's what humans need. Uh, and I don't, <laughs> well, you're shaking your head, Corinna. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna get that. I, I can't have that and my integrity at the same time, <laughs> right? Like, I, I know people who have lots. Like, I'm thinking of one friend in particular, and she has lots of people that love her. She is so beloved, and mm. she is also such a doormat, and does not. Uh, mm. She doesn't live her life anything like me. She submits when someone's pushing on her to submit and lots of people love her. And I 
think like, oh, it must be nice to have so many people love you. And then there's me. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'm not going to roll over to your stupid thing. That's stupid. I'm, you know, disagreeable. But it's not, but I mean, well, not, not gratuitously. Yeah. But I just don't see, I don't see how I'm going to trust uh, human nature. I don't trust human nature. Humans are very tribal and they need scapegoats. And these are all behaviors that have been exhibited by humans throughout history and probably prehistory. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've never been a, I'm, I'm like a species trader. And that's probably just a reflection of how I feel my species is about me. You know, it's like, yeah, I have this antagonistic, mm. unaccepting relationship with the rest of humanity. I was talking to a Pakistani friend. She, so she lives here, but she's born in Pakistan. And, uh, and I've known her for uh, nearly 20 years. But she was telling me about her family origins. Um, which she hadn't told me before, just kind of really interesting stories of, of her great grandparents and who they'd met and and basically part of her family, you know, one half of the family had had been in India and the other half in Pakistan. And the ones who were in India had migrated and yeah, there were appalling stories and, and the, the one grandmother who, who escaped was on a train full of dead people and, and stuff like that. And which, you know, unfortunately is reasonably normal for, you know, any family that had migration either on both sides, India and Pakistan. And she was saying, you know, actually people don't talk about this very much because what's the point? Because, you know, we all we all know it's all in there. So it's all in there. Um, so there's not a lot of point in wallowing in it. But it the, just just having the conversation made me think that, that certainly we in the United Kingdom, um, have you know one of the reasons we're so ludicrously nostalgic about the second world war is that we have not suffered very much from tribal conflict um we we are not accustomed to the kind of thing that happened in yugoslavia where neighbors are suddenly massacring each other because they happen to be in the wrong tribe or that happened in pakistan india or they happened in uh rwanda uh, and we tell ourselves we have this, you know, ridiculous British exceptionalism that, that you know, kind of we're different. We're kind of so much more, you know, settled and balanced and mature people. And, you know, by and large, we have the happy accident that we're on an island and so we don't get invaded so much and so we don't get massacred. But I, I think this, what is going on at the moment is that, that, that because you know, sort of being being in tribes has become a such an important part of, of human recreation and maybe it always was if you were a football fan or something but maybe for you know people like you know I, somebody like me who was never a football fan but but now I'm a football fan on Twitter because I've got my own football Twitter football team you know that kind of stuff then then we are discovering aren't we how uh, established friendships relationships you know neighbor relations really can turn and get very very scary over something which ought not to make so much so much difference i appreciate you mentioning that because actually that really puts things in perspective when i think about uh people literally killing each other it puts like yeah being canceled is bad it's bad it's traumatic yeah. but humans have done much worse 
Well, just wait, Nina. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not putting this past people, but it could be worse. We've witnessed worse, you know, elsewhere. We have it pretty good here with our first world problems at the moment, our current first world problems. Simon, in your your recollection of the past of the 90s, back before gays and lesbians had equal civil standing with, with heterosexuals, do you remember ever, even even among the groups that were uh, happily, virulently anti-gay, do you ever remember there ever being as much violent rhetoric against gays as there seems to be violent rhetoric against people who do not, not accept that trans women are women? I think, I mean, my, my immediate reaction is no. I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I, I was... I'm old enough, but I, I wasn't out, uh, so I uh, I came out at about the age of about 24 or something. So I missed the sharp end of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, you know, I'm thinking the the, the poisonous, really violent rhetoric uh, coming from politicians in many cases. Get yeah, gay men should be rounded up, put in refugee camps stuff like that that was happening in the 80s um that's perhaps close to it i mean i guess that i guess the experience of you know certainly not not as a gay man i i I, in my life as an out gay man i think there has been if you wanted to take offense and at many times in my life i have wanted to take offense there was quite a lot to take offence at, but it wasn't the language of, as you say, um, you know, extreme violent threats, and that kind of language was the preserve of a very, very narrow, you know, political group, you know, the far right or what have you, that you never had any contact with. So yeah, I mean, for me, I have to say, I do not experience those threats because. It is extraordinary, this phenomenon. Um, you know, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it and compared my experience with people who say exactly the same things as me, but just happen to be women, um, that if anybody has threatened me with death or rape, I haven't noticed. I have had this hostage to fortune, but I've maybe had two nasty messages on my personal website uh ever um at, whereas you know my other you know women authors who were saying the same kind of stuff and me same same kind of profile of me would have two nasty messages on their website every hour or something and and so uh, you know I, I, again that is that is the big eye opener the way that people talk differently to women than they do to men um and uh, and you know I don't know if it was, Nina was it always obvious to you that people uh, the, the world treats women that differently? Or is it just confirming what you knew already, or or has that come as a shock to you? Uh, when I was young, when I was a teenager, it was obvious. When I was in my twenties, I. I guess I dropped feminism for third wave feminism. I guess I 
I had some dissonant, you know, cognitive dissonance about that because um, I was so preoccupied with having sex with men. <laughs> it really does something to you. Uh, and men do not like to hear women whine about being victims. So then, Passion killer. Yeah. yeah, then it, and also um, women who want to have sex with men don't want to think about what men are actually doing. <laughs> we don't want to think, it's, just, it's yeah. just a downer for everybody. Yeah, I can uh, see that. And then about, well, I guess in 2017, when I was quietly mentioning that uh, you can't literally change sex and that I thought that Caitlyn Jenner was quite sexist. I thought that this whole Vogue cover business, I don't know if you remember that Vogue cover that he was on where he was posed in a corset with hands behind his back and then all this media saying, oh, you're a woman now. And I was going like, this is just sex. These are sexist stereotypes. This isn't right. So that was when I had to do some hard thinking and learned what radical feminism was and read Andrea Dworkin for the first time. And then I was like, hey, this is all stuff that I thought when I was a teenager and it's right. This stuff is right. Uh, so it's not like I knew this the whole time, but I it did feel like sort of waking up or snapping out of something. And of course, it was coinciding with perimenopause for some reason. You know, my ovaries shutting down, so I wasn't boy crazy anymore. And yes, I can say certainly since 2017, yes, it's very clear that women were targets of just vicious hatred from people that I never expected it from. And I do consider the modern trans rights movement to be fundamentally misogynistic. And I think that it is popular because it gives people license to express hatred towards women without consequence. It gives all these lefty dude bros and their handmaidens. I know handmaidens an offensive term, but I'm angry. Um, <laughs> it gives them license to hate on women and people love to hate, you know, mm. it's like in Orwell's 1984. Was it, was it the two minute hate or the five minute hate, but just, you know, your daily dose of hate. It's great. Hating in a tribe is a wonderful mm. bonding experience. It gives mm. people that yeah. sense of integration and belonging <laughs> that we so crave. Let's let's contemplate Owen Jones for the next two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I Owen Jones remains this specifically UK thing. He's like, I see all these UK people just loving to hate him. And I, I'll just see a clip and it's like, well, there's this obnoxious guy, you know, sort of conventionally cute, annoying guy and all these people hating him. And I'm like, this is like a UK thing, like tonics, tea cakes and tea in general and, and crumpets yeah. and clotted cream and things like that. I mean, it's a particular phenomenon, though, isn't it, that you can have um, a million followers none of whom seem to like you. I mean, it's just, it's really peculiar because he, he, he trends on Twitter, you know, virtually every day and uh, often, you know, kind of for different reasons because pe pe you know, people in the middle of the 
kind of because he's on the left of the Labour Party, then he's always attacking. He attacks his own party leadership instead of the Conservative government. And but but he's not left enough, and so the kind of the the real hard left hate him because he was once read about Jeremy Corbyn, and and then kind of conservatives hate him because you know for, for. not such good reasons, and they're homophobes who hate him. I mean, it's a really bizarre experience, existence for him, having having no allies. But I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna feel sorry for him because he he really is kind of living poison. That the 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 things that I've seen him do to people that I care about, particularly the two women that set up the LGB alliance, how how the, the people like him have made their lives just hell. It's likely that he'll never pay for any of it. Although, you know what? Maybe that's maybe that's not entirely fair because mm. I I do recall actually that he was a, a victim of a, a gay bashing. He was, and and that's not to say that he was paying for anything, but rather to say that he's not somebody who's completely immune from any sort of negative thing in his life because he, he certainly was and and something quite yeah. bad yeah and, and he is attacked you know there are plenty of people who attack him for really you know kind of for, for the wrong reasons because they hate him because he's gay so yeah it is easy for him to believe that 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 he is detested so wide widely because he is such a beacon of of rectitude and 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 he is a martyr for his own cause and the other one, because so you mentioned Benjamin Cohen, that we we um, the the, uh, the the man who runs uh, Pink News, and I you know I've got to tell you if it, I, you know whether it's come across the Atlantic yet, but this afternoon, our charity commission uh, launched an investigation uh, of mermaids, and uh, oh no, Pink, Pink News said <laughs> Pink News said uh, yesterday ran a piece saying uh, that the the genesis of the story, Daily Telegraph, uh, Daily Newspaper, Conservative Daily Newspaper, had done an undercover investigation of mermaids, uh, and it then reported a rumour that the Charity Commission was about to launch an investigation. Pink News then did a headline to say this wasn't true. And they were probably right that that there was no investigation had been confirmed. That had the Daily Telegraph's headline was overstating it. Uh, today that aged very badly, where the Charity Commission confirmed that they're doing an investigation. Pink News has gone back uh, to the Charity Commission and sort of because they because by getting the Charity Com- Commission to confirm that they have not yet escalated their investigation to to the level of a statutory inquiry, this means they're not doing an investigation. So, I mean, it really is extraordinary that that the the role of this website seems to be to, you know, you can send your journalists out. This is what the story is going to be. The story is that this thing that the Terps are saying is not true. Uh, So you have got to find how it's not true. Don't care how you do it. Just twist, you say, you turn everything up upside down, um, and um, the, the really poisonous thing is that you know there are very many people sincerely 
who take them. I mean, they're stupid, but they they take this as the, as a new as a legitimate news source. And when Pink News tells them that the rest of the media is lying about this evil transphobic story that they're you know that it's all part of the assault on on trans people by the evil mainstream media. Um, then there are plenty of people who are going to believe that, including, of course, lots of trans readers, but also the, the rest of the LGBT community, so-called. And, and allies. It's a favorite of allies. Yeah, yeah. And and so it, I mean, I think, because it, it would be hard for people to believe that that you really would lie to that extent and make stuff up so comprehensively. Um, because that just seems really conspiratorial. That why would you do that? So you're just you're just breeding this resentment, yeah. You know, and and if you did think that if it were true that that all these well-funded national newspapers were just churning out lies, and and it's only Pink News which has got the truth and knows that these that would be all the other stories are lies, that would be very very aggravating. It would be horrible to live in a world like that. You know, only the right wing acts like that. The left wing doesn't do that. Only the right wing like makes up news and pushes propaganda and just confab- yeah. <laughs> confabulates <laughs> stories. That's what yeah. I keep hearing. Yeah. So yeah. Well, let's. Well, I would once have believed that certainly. And and if I, again, if I hadn't had a stake in in these things, and I mean, I, actually, one of the things that that is is new about the world is that you know I know this from my my background as a journalist that that um, it it is quite rare that you are involved in a news story, and so you know if you, if you if there is something that you know about already, and then you see it reported in the news, you can always see the mistakes in it because all journalists are fallible. Um, that didn't used to happen very often. In the age of social media, where the Twitter storm is the news, and you might have been a part of the Twitter storm, you certainly watched it unfold, and you're watching the newspapers catching up with reporting the Twitter storm a day later or two days later, you can see how much of it is, is in error, in, in, in honest error. But you can also see how much of it is deliberately false, and an awful lot of us are now in that position, very very frequently. That's weird, isn't it? That's a new thing yeah. as well. The the reporting is quite sloppy. I'm thinking about the, the reporting is sloppy, but but we have our own yardstick. We can see that it's sloppy because we were there, because right. because millions of us are there on Twitter all the time. The way that it's printed, it reads fine, but. It's just, it reads fine because some of what's printed is false. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, what's reported is molded around the, the true things to make everything glue together. Okay. Mm. I'm thinking about the New York times, nature, scientific American. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Simon, it seems like in the UK that there are a number of gay authors that are trying to turn the ship around. Uh, there's you obviously, but there's also Douglas Murray, there's Andrew Doyle, each taking different approaches to trying to open up this conversation and mm-hmm. maybe pull back some more liberal values into the mix. Is there something, some sort of special sauce that 
gay men in the UK have? Or is it important that we just gather around you and protect you so that you all can, can lead us out of this nightmare? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I, th- I think actually that the, you know, we were talking earlier about cowardice and, you know, again, you know, it's easy to be self-righteous about, you know, we're not cowards because we speak out. I do because I can at a particular point in my life. Um, uh, my income is not very high, but it is not going to be, it's not jeopardized by my speaking out. Um, and Andrew, uh, and Douglas, who, who both sell way more books than me, uh, have a much higher profile, um, are, are in a similar position and, and both of them are, are controversialists. So they, th- their success depends on them speaking out and, and, and being against the stream. Um, I think if, if you are an author, then you've got a platform. It's easier to be an author in the modern world because you can you, you don't have to wait till you've got a book out because you've got Twitter, you've got social media there all the time. You can use that to sort of hone your message. And, you know, it's a lot easier for us to, to have a profile doing this than if we were doctors or, you know, firemen or, you know, and the fact that we are, you know, we're, we're part of the point of us is that we're meant to be individuals with individual opinions mm. and voices. So you've got some sort of privilege. Yeah. I, like. I wanted to say that these are all the thoughts that I had when I decided to come out in 2017. And uh, I was amazed at how canceled I was able to be. I did not think it mm. was possible. And some of that is the hammer coming down harder on me because I'm a woman. In fact, a lot of it yeah. was the hammer coming down harder on me because I'm a woman. But I was like, well, you yeah. know, I'm an independent artist and I you know, don't make too much money and I can afford to do this. And mm. it was just incredible, uh, the cost okay. that it had to yeah. my work. I was like, I was yeah. like, fine, you know, go after me. But they were suppressing my work. And my yeah. work is free culture movies. And they were cast out of festivals, not invited to festivals in the first place. Uh, Word of mouth was destroyed because somebody would discover something of mine, tweet about it, like, oh, why didn't I know about this film? And immediately someone would respond, oh, she's a turf and a bigot. She wants to kill trans people. And the person would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And it's like, Mm, poof. It's like I became obscure really fast. Okay. Mm. I used to be taught Mm. in schools I recently talked to an animation student who said that she had just discovered my work and she was like, why hadn't I heard of this? And I was like, well, because I was canceled. She said, why were you canceled? I said, well, because I said, if a person has a penis, he's a man. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I think, you know, that I, I have been very lucky, uh, in and and I want to certainly I have the confidence to be gobby about it because it's it's not doing my you know it's nice to have people saying that they like my book and talking about it on three continents is you know it's very flattering it's a, it's what every writer wants um, and that didn't happen before I wrote about this subject I am unusual I think in that. 
there are things I can that we've talked about, you know, kind of lost friendships and so on. Um, but the the cost to me really has been very limited, and and I think, as you say, partly uh, difference in men and women, um, but uh, just accident of where I am in my life, which you know is is you know. So I'm I'm conscious of of you know, kind of it irritates me a little bit whether that that too many men are um too many gay men are are anonymous on on twitter um i i get why so many women are um but then i remind myself that i'm in a much more privileged position than most people um i mean my privilege is living on a tiny income so so it's, it's a sort of nothing to lose type privilege but but it, it's you that know, low I'm, income I'm, privilege I also yeah, have yeah. low income privilege. It's me and G- J.K. Rowling. She was too big to destroy. I was too small to destroy. <laughs> I was just the right size. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of your other works, where can people go to learn more about your your books and, and your publications? Um, well, uh, uh, everything is is on Amazon, and everything is available in uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and so I've written uh, the, the End of the World is Flat is, is, is my fifth novel. The previous ones tended to take a historical subject and just mess around with them. So I, I did a the Victorian poet Jared Manny Hopkins was uh, uh, wrote about a miserable shipwreck and he had a miserable life and I wrote a comedy about him. So I, it's kind of what, what I've tried to do in my writing career is do unexpected things, which will make uh, uh, apparently difficult subjects a bit more accessible. But um, there is a new one on the go. I am now a third of the way through it, and it is sort of a follow-up to The End of the World is Flat. Um, and uh, it is penciled in for publication in July, and it's going to be called In the Beginning. It will involve creationism. Yay! <laughs> and it will have some familiar people in it. And uh, one thing I, I missed out, actually, and the end of the world is flat, doesn't really have any politicians in it. Hmm. So, so I'm going to um, r- restore that. But we've also had a lot of tribunals. And have you been watching the tribunals? And uh, the, yeah, um, so I was a little bit inspired by one tribunal in particular. So, so my new book is will have a tribunal in it. Can you say which tribunal? No, well I can't. But All I'm right, to... okay. Thank you for joining us on Heterodorks. Thank. Thank you for having me. Yes, I really enjoyed this conversation, Simon. And thank you for listening, Turfs and Trannies. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.